daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It could be, it could be the be beginning of something great. Uh, Russian and Ukrainian delegations met face to face for the first time in weeks. They met in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, under the prodding and encouragement of the president, the strongman of Turkey, uh, Recep Tayyip uh, Erdogan. And uh, there are comments on both sides indicating that there may be an upcoming meeting at some point between uh, Zelensky and Putin, and uh, that some kind of agreement is possible. Uh, the United States taking the position, which is the right position to take, that it is it, you, up to Ukraine to accept or to reject uh, proposals. They have made a series of proposals, Ukraine has, on which they would end this war, but it isn't ending yet. There was, uh, there has been all kinds of fighting going on. Of course, the suffering continues to go on. Uh, one of the things that shows you how fragile this thing is is that uh, the both Russian and Ukrainian negotiators were urged not to touch any food. Why not? Because one of the reasons the last round of negotiations broke down is apparently a number of people were poisoned. Uh, that's not a good sign when you're dealing with Vladimir Putin. I mean, how good is a sign going to be when you're dealing with Vladimir Putin? You remember all of those surveys and studies that talked about the horrors and the terrors of using screen time? Uh, there was a uh, study that found that um, 7 in 10 parents had real fears that their kids were becoming Internet zombies and kids spend more time on their screens than they do with parents or siblings or anybody else. Well, there's a new study, big one, from Britain that says, take it easy, Mom. Don't worry. Dad, relax. It's okay. The uh, that there's a certain period of time when you're growing up, you have to watch out for the influence of screens, but generally it's not that bad. And a couple of fascinating polls about what Americans would do, and the reactions are very different depending on who you are. If we were invaded here by uh, Russia, would Americans uh, fight, stay and fight like the Ukrainians have done? And with increasing success, it would appear. And uh, another poll from uh, asking Russian Americans and Ukrainian Americans, okay, if you had one word in English to describe uh, Vladimir Putin, what would that word be? Uh, you can give your own answers if you want to give that uh, also. Uh, there is so much news on this. Uh, after a... A day of talks, Ukrainian negotiators outlined some peace proposals that Russia said it would leak in, into, and Moscow said it would drastically reduce military activity near Kiev and Cherniev to uh, increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations. Look, after what the Russians have done to that country, to whole cities, to increase mutual trust, uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of trust on the Ukrainian side.
nor should there be. Uh, there can be what Reagan said, trust but verify. And how do you verify? And this is the key part of what's fascinating about the negotiations they're pursuing is they would have guardian countries. They would have countries including Canada, European countries, and Israel that would be called upon to monitor any agreement and to make sure that that agreement was kept on both sides. Uh, speaking to lawmakers on Tuesday, the Pentagon's top general overseeing U.S. troops in Europe said that he sees shifting dynamics on the ground domain near Kiev uh, appearing to confirm that some Russian forces in the region are pulling back. Nevertheless, Secretary of State Antony Blinken expressed skepticism about the latest round of negotiations, saying there is what Russia says and what Russia does. Asked if the United States detects that Russia has been shifting its military offensive away from Kiev, Blinken said he couldn't say, adding that he can't tell you whether these statements reflect a reorientation on eastern and southern Ukraine or whether this is meant uh, means by which Russia is trying to deflect and deceive. Uh, John Kirby is taking questions at the uh, Pentagon right now about this complicated and thorny situation. Let's listen in. Russia's pulled back on actually sending supplies into Ukraine. Are they still basically continuing their own convoys of, of moving supplies, fuel, food, anything like that? Or if they stop doing that, it is just the troops that have basically... Again, very early stages here. They've only just recently in, in, in the last few hours uh, made this proclamation. So we have seen a small number begin to move away from Kiev. That's about the most I can give you. Um, I don't have any information on their resupply efforts for, for troops that are still arrayed against Kiev. I would remind that the Russians still have uh, the, uh, a significant majority of their assembled combat power to include logistics and sustainment, sustainment capability available to them inside Ukraine. Yeah. So just uh, I'm trying to understand something. If, if you're talking about a small number, do you think just what you're seeing now, or do you think there's going to be more numbers? Because you're saying they might be pulling out these forces to redeploy somewhere else. If they are small numbers, are they going to make any difference if they were redeployed? Is it the beginning of, of something? It's a great question like for Minister Shoigu. I, I don't know, Fadi. All I can tell you is what we're seeing. Uh, we're, we're seeing a small number now that appears to be moving away from Kyiv. This on the same day that the Russians say they're withdrawing. But we're not prepared to call this a retreat or even a withdrawal. We think that, that what they probably have in mind is a repositioning to prioritize elsewhere. And do they still have uh, uh, enough forces on the ground uh, around Kyiv in case they decided to uh, basically uh, relaunch some kind of attack on, on the city. Uh, again, I, I'm not going to predict what the Russian military plan is here. Uh, to my, my answer to Bob, uh, very, very small numbers that we've seen move at this point. They still have the vast majority of the forces that they had assembled around Kyiv are still there. As I've said before, we largely assess that they are in a defensive posture. They have, they have uh, several days ago, stopped trying to advance on Kyiv and sort of took up defensive positions. Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, three questions, please. Can you update us on the number? Writing. Can you update us on the number of missiles? I'll just ask one more time if that's easier. That's actually much easier. Yeah. Uh, what's the number of missiles that Russia's launched into Ukraine at this point? Uh, I don't have an update on the on the on the missiles. Uh, you know, I uh, they, they we know that they have uh, since the beginning of this uh, 
launched more than a thousand, but I don't have an exact number. Okay. Um, secondly, uh, does the Pentagon still consider Russia a near peer competitor? I, I think you can uh, take away from um, uh, what we talked about yesterday when we released the budget, and we uh, we talk about Russia as an acute threat, and that's that's how we're looking at Russia right now. But that's not the same as what you've been saying. You've been saying near peer competitors, Russia and China, and now we, we're hearing acute threat, acute threat. So has it changed in, in the Pentagon's view? We, we consider Russia as an acute threat based on certainly what, what we've been seeing happen over the last month. Okay. And then uh, my last question is about Ukraine's peace proposal. Uh, it, it seems like they envision some sort of security guarantee. Uh, like uh, Article 5 with NATO, with a country like Poland or Turkey or Canada. Uh, so my question is, does the Pentagon think that's feasible? Because these are NATO countries, and establishing some sort of collective defense with the NATO country would essentially bring in all of NATO with this. So does the Pentagon find a proposal like that feasible? I think we're not going to get ahead of where Ukraine and Russia are on their, uh, on their discussions. Um, uh, this has got to be... Uh, a negotiation between Russia and Ukraine. And that's John Kirby at the Pentagon talking about the latest, latest. Uh, do you remember those 13, and some people said 19, heroic Ukrainian sailors at the beginning of the war who told a uh, Russian warship to go beep themselves and they were all supposed to be dead? Well, they're alive, and in fact, some of them are out they were exchanged in a prisoner exchange and they're getting awards from the Ukrainian government. That and more. Medved show, uh, though there are elements of uh, encouragement concerning uh, potential negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, does anyone honestly believe that Putin has given up his uh, dream, which was basically to swallow up all of Ukraine, not just to uh, get some referendums that would take place in Crimea. They've already had one in Crimea. Uh, that they would have uh, some kind of negotiations about Crimea, which they've already seized, about parts of the Donbass that they've already seized, but that they would allow Kiev and Lviv and uh, Mariupol and the other cities of Ukraine to try to rebuild and reexist as separate independent sovereign cities in a separate country. Uh, the willingness to accept that, given the fact that, uh, remember, Putin came into this war, he said the one thing that was necessary about the war was the decapitation of the government of Ukraine. That means you, Zelensky. And, uh, the decap and not just the decapitation, but the denazification. And uh, given the... 25 million approximately Russians who died at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. The uh, Russians won that war, but far more Russians were killed than Germans in the fight on the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans. In any event, given that history, to talk about denazification implies total war. Well, the total war hasn't gone so well for, um, for the Russians. Uh, there's a, an entire other worry, and Americans need to be
concerned about it yesterday. Our peripatetic uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was uh, actually in Israel. And he was in the Negev, and De Boker, which is uh, associated as a sort of a historic uh, former uh, kibbutz uh, that uh, was founded at least partially by David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, sort of, sort of like the Israeli Mount Vernon, but no slaves, no slave quarters. And... Uh, uh, the founder of the country, really, that being, if anyone was the George Washington of Israel, it was David Ben-Gurion, and he lived there for the remainder of his life under very modest circumstances. And because he made some of the first moves to try to reconcile between Jews and Arabs yesterday when they were together with the foreign minister of Israel, Yair Lapid, and uh, the foreign ministers from Morocco and from United Arab Emirates, uh, Emirates uh, and uh, Bahrain and Egypt. Uh, they were all linking arms and talking about working together and forming a joint alliance against uh, Iran. This is the fruit of the Abraham Accords, which was one of the biggest achievements for sure of the Trump administration. And uh, today, a terrible headline, uh, Arab gunman kills at least five people in Tel Aviv suburb. Uh, this occurred in B'nai Brak. And B'nai Brak is a, what is called an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. It's a neighborhood where you may have heard something about Rabbi Kanievsky, who... Uh, just passed away at age 96, and they had over 300,000 people for his funeral. It was the biggest crowd, they think, that had ever been assembled in modern Israel. And um, in any event, B'nai Brak was where his headquarters were, and it is a, an intensely religious area where most of the people are too busy uh, studying, basically, and uh, trying to study Torah to get too deeply involved in politics or, or this kind of horror. This is a story from Reuters. An Arab gunman killed at least five people in a Tel Aviv suburb on Tuesday before he was fatally shot. The National Ambulance Service said the latest in a string of deadly attacks in Israel. Amateur video broadcast on Israeli television stations showed a man dressed in black and pointing an assault rifle walking down a street in B'nai Brak, a Jewish ultra-Orthodox city on the outskirts of Israel's commercial capital. What's interesting is we're coming up in just a couple of weeks to the Jewish holiday of Passover. And at the very beginning of the Passover Haggadah, the story of Passover that you read every year, there's a reference to B'nai Brak because it is uh, where sages literally 2,000 years ago in the first century were gathering to study the story of the Exodus, and it says they were in B'nai Brak, same place. And what does this have to do with? It has to do with, and people have been warning about this, that uh, Ramadan is coming. And they've had three major attacks, and a total of 11 uh, people have been killed uh, by knife attacks, uh, gun attacks, uh, at police officers and others just shot down. The Israeli media report that uh, 
quoting unidentified security officials, the assailant was a Palestinian from a village near the city of Jenin in uh, the Palestinian Authority. In uh, B'nai Brock, witnesses said the gunman began shooting at apartment balconies and then at people in the street and in a car. A Mugged uh, David Adam, which means the uh, the Red Star of David, that's the uh, Israeli version of Red Cross. Uh, that um, ambulance service said he shot dead five people, raising to 11 the number of Israelis killed by Arab assailants over the past week. The terrorist was liquidated, ambulance spokesman Zaki Heller uh, said, and police officers said officers fatally shot the gunman. And uh, uh, there's one uh, paramedic named Menachem Englander who said, I live on Hashnaim Street in B'nai Brock, and I was at home when I heard gunshots. And then I immediately went out on the street and saw a terrorist pointing a weapon at me. By a miracle, his weapon jammed, and he couldn't shoot. Uh, last week, an Arab citizen of Israel killed four people in a stabbing and car-ramming attack in the city of Beersheba, uh, in the far south of Israel, at the edge of the Negev, the big desert the far south of Israel, before he was shot dead by a passerby. Israeli authorities said he was an Islamic State sympathizer, an Islamic State. I know, we. everyone thought they were done. They claimed credit for those killings. Look, it, it's, it's a terrible thing, and uh, it, I, th I think it reassures Israelis uh, about what has been happening with the position of Israel relative to the rest of the world, that now people are talking about Israel playing a role in helping to monitor some kind of peace agreement, if there is one, between Zelensky and Putin. So what about Putin's reaction to Biden saying, uh, my God, we need to... This man must not remain in power. And so how about uh, the reaction there from Putin and the rest of the administration? We'll be right back on the MedVet Show. Talks uh, resumed uh, between uh, Ukrainian negotiators and uh, Russian negotiators. A missile struck a regional administration building in Mykolaiv. Uh, the Ukrainian deputy prime minister, Irina Verishchuk, uh, said three humanitarian corridors were agreed upon for the day, including one directly from the besieged city of Mariupol. And that city, which originally had a population before the war of 400,000, is now down to less than 100,000. Uh, meanwhile, Vladimir Medinsky, who's an advisor to uh, President Putin, appeared to suggest that Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky could meet in person if a peace agreement were signed. Uh, look, when they're warning people to be careful not to touch anything because of poison, 
or to eat anything while you're negotiating with these Russians. Uh, I hope uh, Zelensky, and I'm sure he would, brings very strong security with him. Members of the Ukrainian delegation said they proposed that countries such as Israel, they mentioned Israel first, Turkey and France would guarantee Ukraine security in the future in exchange for Kyiv's neutrality and a pledge not to host foreign military bases or forces. Uh, all of this is going on. The uh, story about Snake Island, a Ukrainian border guard who reportedly voiced a defiant message to approaching Russian troops has received an award for demonstrating, quote, the firmness and strength of the Ukrainian Cossack spirit, a Ukrainian official said. Roman Hribov uh, returned to central Ukraine's Cherkasky region after Russian forces took him prisoner from his base on Snake Island during the first days of the invasion. Ihor Taburets, the uh, region's governor, said in a statement uh, as he presented the guard with a commendation for merits to Cherkasy region. Reboff is credited with telling an approaching Russian warship to go beep yourself in a recording that attracted widespread attention and became a rallying cry for supporters of Ukraine. Thirteen guards on the desolate island in the Black Sea were first believed to have been killed, but the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine later said the soldiers may have survived. Well, they did. Uh, last week, Ukrainian officials said 19 sailors from Snake Island were freed in a prisoner exchange with Russia. Uh, Taburet said the soldiers on Snake Island demonstrated that Ukraine has true defenders who exemplified the fortitude of the Cossack spirit. And uh, with all of this talk of potential negotiation, openings humanitarian corridors, with uh, Putin indicating that they are definitely going to pull back and not uh, have a battle to the death to take over Kyiv, uh, oil fell nearly $100 a barrel and the Dow jumped nearly 200 points. Uh, President um, Biden, President Biden uh, reacted this way today uh, on the news that Russia announced it's pulling forces back from Kiev and uh, uh, elsewhere in northern Ukraine. This is during a press conference where he, uh, the president of the United States appeared with the prime minister of uh, very prosperous Singapore. Uh, here's what President Biden said. Clip one. We'll see. I don't read anything into it until I see what their actions are. We'll see if they follow through on what they're suggesting. There are negotiations that have begun today, or not begun, continued today, one in Turkey and others. I had a meeting with the heads of state of uh, our four allies in NATO, France, Germany, uh, uh, the United States, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and Great Britain. And uh, there seems to be a consensus that uh, let's just see what they have to offer. We'll find out what they do. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to keep strong the sanctions. We're going to continue to provide the Ukrainian military with their capacity to defend themselves. And we're going to continue to keep a close eye on what's going on. Uh, okay. And yesterday, you may remember, there was this uh, desperate desire by his aides basically to undermine the president. 
He was somebody who uh, said uh, at the end of his speech in Warsaw, uh, this man must not remain in power. And at his press conference yesterday, he was asked whether that represented a message uh, to the Russian people or a change in American policy. And here's how the President of the United States tried to clarify it. It's been widely interpreted as a gaffe, but a number of editorialists, very forcefully Jennifer Rubin, for instance, have said, no, it's not a gaffe. It's a gaffe on the part of his aides who uh, are speaking without the President's clarity. Uh, here's President Biden yesterday. Six. I was talking to, them, to the Russian people. The last part of the speech was talking to the Russian people, telling them what we thought. And I was communicating this to not only the Russian people, but the whole world. This is, this is just stating a simple fact that this kind of behavior is totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable. And the way to deal with it is to strengthen and, and put, uh, keep NATO completely united and help Ukraine where we can. Uh, okay, and right now uh, it's Russia that appears to need help or some reorientation. Uh, for instance, there's a, uh, a dramatic uh, disorganization, and which has continued with the Russian troops, the Russian invading forces, and uh, a senior advisor to President Zelensky of Ukraine, Sergei uh, Leschenko, uh, spoke on CNN about what's happening as the Russians are withdrawing from uh, positions close to Kiev and elsewhere. Uh, clip two. This horrible topic, but uh, a lot of bodies of Russian soldiers just laid on our ground with a horrible smell, with a horrible conditions. Uh, if you heard President say that dogs eating these this bodies, it's uh, horrible, but it's true. And Russia does not take measures to stop it, to prevent it, to take bodies of their mm -hmm. soldiers back home. Unfortunately, it's 21st century, but it's going on in the middle of Europe. Okay, and on a, a happier note, and uh, again, uh, obviously the, the very reality and brutality of that is a kind of thing that discourages the Putinesque belief that this is going to be an easy campaign, it'll just be a walk in the park, and no substantial casualties, when there are estimates of up to 40,000 Russian casualties. Uh, here is Christian Amanpour uh, talking about the possible implications of a Putin-Zelensky face-to-face meeting. Clip 8. The Russians raising yeah. this possibility, and they use some flowery language, of a Putin-Zelensky meeting. What do you see there, Christian? Yep. Well, look, again, if that was to be the case, it is another major concession to President Zelensky, who has asked from the very beginning, even before the invasion, to have face-to-face -face talks with President Putin. Up until just yesterday, or the day before, the Kremlin was saying there is not enough progress in these talks i.e. maybe not enough progress for them on the ground um, to have that kind of meeting. If they are, in fact, floating that now, that is something that President Zelensky had asked for. He kept saying, he said it to me just before the uh, invasion when we were in Munich. He said, 
I don't know what Putin wants. That's why I want to have a face-to-face -face meeting. Putin poo-pooed that. He wanted to talk to other world leaders. He would love to talk to the United States. Um, but he poo-pooed that. And now if it's true that they're raising that, that again is another important move. The, the real bottom line is how to get Putin off this ledge. And uh, <laughs> can you shove him off? Uh, that raises a question. What words do you think of when you think about Putin? There was a poll that asked that question. We'll get to it coming up. Michael Medved show uh, we are living through history making times you can get some living history and uh, connect with it in a very personal and I, I believe enjoyable and meaningful way when you become a medhead and a medhead plus subscription you can download our daily show no ads and on demand uh, plus, you can stream hundreds of history programs. You pay a little, you learn a lot. How little do you pay? It's 22 cents a day. Really not much. Uh, so uh, go to michaelmedved.com or go to medvedhistorystore.com and become a Medhead Plus member, which gives you access to all of this at a very, very reasonable cost. Um, the problem with polls when they get weird is not the way they're conducted. It's the questions they ask, the way they're set up. And uh, there's a USA Today, Suffolk University polls where they set up two sort of twin polls. And it's weird because they didn't ask Americans. They asked Americans on one poll with Russian heritage and Americans uh, on another poll with a Ukrainian heritage. And uh, one of the questions they asked is, what word best describes Vladimir Putin? And I guess they felt that uh, they, they, people here for, of Russian heritage would have a, a more positive view of Putin. Are you kidding me? Most Russian Americans, and we know a lot of them, uh, and wonderful people, salt of the earth, patriotic Americans, uh, for the most part, uh, very hardworking and, and creative, just great people. And they came to the United States because they wanted to get the hell out of Russia, not because they uh, like Putin's dream of rebuilding the Russian Empire. By the way, if there's somebody out there who says that's a beautiful dream, boy, would that be great to have Russia ruling again over Turkmenistan and uh, Kazakhstan and uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and uh, Belarus and Moldova and, you know, all the rest of them. Wow, the good old glory days of Stalin. We'd really like to go back to that. Do you know how many people Stalin killed? And the whole Gulag archipelago, the, the array of prison camps and torture chambers. And, okay, so... For Russian-Americans and uh, Ukrainian-Americans, there wasn't much of a difference. Everybody hated Putin, of course, and that's appropriate. The um, most frequent response from both Russian, the Russian group and the Ukrainian group was dictator or tyrant. The second word was evil or monster. 
Near the top of both lists were also Crazy Insane and a catch-all that sounds something like the title of a famous children's book, Awful, Horrible, Despicable, Terrible. Um, yeah. Uh, and by, by the way, one of the most powerful and historically significant czars was known as Ivan the Terrible, Ivan Grozny. And uh, so I'm not sure terrible would have been such a terrible insult to uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich. The uh, polls who, uh, these polls were taken uh, between March 5th and March 10th. And what's interesting about this, of course, everything is, is concerning elections. We have a big crucial election coming up for control of Congress in November. Uh, President Biden was um, more approved of, got higher ratings than Putin, but his approval ratings on handling Ukraine were still mediocre at 40% among Russian Americans and 35% among Ukrainian Americans. Why would Russian Americans support Biden more than Ukrainian Americans? And, and again, it seems to me a somewhat uh, mystifying poll. The, uh, the, the ongoing uh, goes together with another poll, which shows, and, and this doesn't surprise me at all, and it's a, another weird poll conducted by Quinnipiac University. And uh, the Quinnipiac poll... Uh, surveyed 1,374 U.S. adults across the country. And out of those participants, 55% when they were asked this question said they would stay and fight. They were asked, would you stay and fight if Russia were to invade the United States the way it did Ukraine? And uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised. Uh, we talked about this before, that it's only 55% who said that they would stay and fight because uh, the, I mean, and then again, when you also look at Ukraine, this is a misleading poll because I don't believe that the majority of the refugees, it may be close to half, but there's no indication that these are people who just want to leave the country, get the heck out. Uh, they are many people who are hoping to come back to their homes when they're not in imminent danger of uh, uh, being blasted by some kind of Russian missile. And uh, that's one of the reasons that... Uh, the, the interesting part of this poll of the Americans who said they would join the fight if the U.S. faced the same situation, most were men in older age groups. 45% uh, of men between the ages of 18 and 34 said they'd stay and fight. That number increased to 57% for those in the 35 to 49 age range and to 66% in the 50 to 64 age range. Also, 40% of women said they would fight compared to 70% of men. And look, this is one of those things where... Uh, if you if you look at the fact that back in World War II, uh, the biggest baseball stars, the biggest movie stars, 
Uh, Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, the star of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and uh, Philadelphia Story and so many great movies. He won an Oscar for Philadelphia Story, Best Supporting Actor. In any event, he went directly from the movie set to the uh, United States uh, Army Air Corps. They didn't have the Air Force yet. And uh, he flew over 50 bombing missions. I mean, he, he was at very, very high risk. Henry Fonda, another big star back in, in those days. Actually, and when you think about Henry Fonda, another Oscar winner at the end of his life for, uh, uh, for on Golden Pond. But, uh, and, and he also got, I think he got a special Oscar that year as well. But in any event, Henry Fonda joined the Navy. And did not want to do a desk job or selling bonds or anything like that. He he was in the Pacific, and uh, and heroically. Now, the the question here is, given the fact that at at that time, in our history, it was it was basically there's 16 million Americans who either enlisted or were drafted at the time. And there was an expectation that this is what Americans, if they had the health and the well-being to do it, that they would have to do. And I think that what people are reading about and hearing about in Ukraine, and it's one of those things that inspires people and I believe is changing America for the better. I have a piece in Newsweek today about how I believe that the example of what is going on in Ukraine and what is going on in defense of that country is making Americans understand a little bit more that uh, the people who disagree with you are not necessarily evil. People who are evil are people who do what Putin does, who are ruining whole cities, who are disrupting families, who are destroying people's entire livelihoods, destroying their lives uh, for, for nothing for uh, a, a, a policy goal that is entirely unclear. You remember he started off in this war, he was going to denazify the Zelensky regime, which is, of course, ridiculous given Zelensky's descent from Holocaust survivors. I, I mean, the entire thing is so distasteful and it's tragic, but it's very, very important. Because, look, uh, if somebody disagrees with you about mask mandates, that can be a really, really bitter disagreement. But someone who disagrees with you on either side is not evil. It's your fellow American. And uh, we do, ultimately, in this dangerous world, need to stick together as part of this greatest nation on God's green earth.